On Cinema Smorgasbord presents How Do You Do, Fellow Kids? We look at the life and film career of the always unique character actor Steve Buscemi. Today we're looking at Robert Rodriguez's big-budget follow-up to the micro-budget wonder that launched his career. It's 1995's Desperado. Welcome to How Do You Do, Fellow Kids. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is my right-hand man, Liam O'Donnell. Liam, how are you doing today? You know, I'm pretty good, Doug. I'm, I'm chilling. I'm relaxing. I'm I'm possibly even maxing and relaxing. I see. I think is- hey, Liam, have you, uh, sorry to interrupt you. I know you were being ridiculous, and I think we should uh, <laughs> we'll return to that at some point. But have you checked out this Fresh Prince of Bel-Air reboot? I believe it's just called Bel-Air. Mm, mm, no, that doesn't sound like a thing I want in my life. People, uh, when the trailer for the television series came out, people thought maybe it was a joke because it's a series, a drama, based on the sitcom Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yeah, I don't know why that's a thing that we need in the world. Now, does it at least have a funny intro where uh, he takes a smelly cab? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I have not watched it myself. It, it, does, it, it does not seem to be something that would interest me unless I was to hear it It was very good, which is still possible. I'm not trying to dismiss it entirely. But I do want to ask you a question, Liam, something that you're not prepared for. Okay. Which is that if we were going to reboot some other sitcom into a dramatic form, which sitcom would it be for you? Oh, Night Court. No. Ooh. Actually, that's a really... I'm surprised there hasn't been a Night Court dramatic style series, even if it wasn't called that. What a great idea, Liam. You had that uh, locked and loaded. I mean, 100%. You wouldn't even have to totally... Like, from what I understand, this Bel Air show is completely serious, right? Yes, I think so. I think it has, like, like a comedic... Like, it's like I, a, a, I think I, you do Night Court as, like, a Nurse Jackie-style dramedy. Oh. So, like, you, what I would do is have all the characters be kind of the same goofy characters they are on the show only all of them has some like horrible serious thing and then all the cases that they're like vamping during are like serious cases that actually have horrible depressing stakes so like it's like they're just the goofy people they are from the show but then also they have like weird addictions and shit you know and you can still have like the womanizing character the john yeah yeah yeah. i think there's a and yeah and and maybe the slightly dopey like uh bailiff and yeah you know what i'm a big uh you know what would kind of work actually what if you did the same show but the only characters that were the same that were exactly the same were bull and the and the judge (laughs) You know? yes. And then everyone else was like a much more serious version of their character. So the huh. judge and Bull just keep being goofy. And everyone else is like, this is this is a rape case, sir. Like, what oh are you doing? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, Liam, you know what's to come? I'd like to see it turned into a dramatic form. Yes. Perfect Strangers. <laughs> I was going to fucking – I was going to say Perfect Strangers until Night Court occurred to me. Because basically when we think of sitcoms, all we can think of is – Perfect Strangers, Night Court, uh, Small Wonder. That's all I got. <laughs> Mr. Fucking Belvedere. Look, inside everyone, there's three sitcoms. Small Wonder, <laughs> Night Court, and Perfect Strangers. <laughs> Liam, this is a Steve Buscemi-themed podcast, believe sure. it or not. Sure. Uh, and, you know, 
because this podcast, unlike our Eric Roberts podcast in the past, is done like every month and a half, two months, something like that. You know, it's not it's not so close together. There tends to be a lot of Steve Buscemi news because the guy is fairly prolific. It's pretty exciting to go through the news and just see how much he's done. Liam, you want to hear some Steve Buscemi news? Yeah, that would be great. Well, this is a particularly interesting thing. Uh, it was just happened in the past week or a little bit over a week as of the time that we recorded this. It is about a podcast, just like this, Liam, a podcast, though they call it an audio magazine, which I don't like hearing that at all. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> a podcast called Paperless uh, by the uh, nonfiction production house Vespucci. Uh, so this is a basically these different news stories, I guess you could say. They're, they're actual nonfiction stories, and they're read by different celebrities. And the latest one is the story of a man named Gosnell Duncan, a car mechanic who in 1965 had an accident, and then afterwards he could no longer get an erection, Liam. Uh, but he still felt erotic, and he uh, started to make, uh, created a home business where he he uh, makes dildos. And this was this is what it is about this guy who made these sexual aids. Uh, and it's not like, I know that the concept of it makes it sound comedic, and certainly with Steve Buscemi's voice on it, it adds a lightness to it. But it, it, I was listening to it a little bit of it earlier, and it seems very interesting and engaging. It's not mocking. It's actually really talking about how this guy who had this horrible accident and ended up in a wheelchair was helping other people who had uh, disabilities that that um, didn't allow them to please their partner sexually, and that he he was kind of like this heroic character who helped uh, helped aid these people. Pretty interesting, Liam. It is really interesting. And, you know, Steve Buscemi, it's weird to say he's the perfect person to bring this to life. But there is something, this is one of the things that's kind of a theme of a lot of the news that we talk about on this, is that he really does occupy a very unique place in popular culture in that there's just so much, and I know we've said this before, there's just so much warmth towards him. Right. Like he is just appearing. I mean, in the 90s, when he would appear in a movie, particularly the late 90s, it was sort of a shorthand because he had that kind of coolness factor. But now he has kind of like a different shorthand, which is just like, oh, Steve Buscemi's here. Well, I guess everything's going to be okay. That sort of thing. He's just a very reassuring person to have appear. Am I am I off the the mark on this, Liam? I don't think so. I think uh, it's been a while since someone used him as a visual cue of like something's about to go wrong. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, like we haven't seen the full anxiety Buscemi in a long time, and I'm wondering if that's uh, uh, Buscemi. Sorry, uh, that I'm wondering if that's because it doesn't work for a man of his age anymore. Sure, you know, like that manic energy that he was really known for, and it's not his only acting, but it it sort of became his trademark for a little while. It's hard to picture a man his age doing that and not finding it even more upsetting than it was when he was younger. <laughs> like that kind of energy would be hard from, from a, from a man who just seems like a comf- comforting old, older uncle or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm maybe that's that, that, that uncle like quality is that warmth that I was trying to get yeah. at, but you're, yeah. that's a very interesting thing, you know, just to go back to the fact that we have an Eric Roberts themed podcast, a very successful one, Liam, you and I have, um, and his early roles, he found great success having a lot of that manic energy as well in things like Pope of Greenwich Village and Star 80 and in Runaway Train. But he's had a little bit of difficulty, I think, adjusting into more laconic style roles later in his career. Uh, and we, you know, we, I think you and I, we like it when he brings that energy back. But like Steve Buscemi, I think he really can kind of play in both worlds where people like to see him as that motor mouth kind of weaselly guy, but they like him as, 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 a good, as a good guy too, as just this fun, comforting presence. I think the thing with Eric Roberts is it's hard 
it's hard sometimes to determine if what he's doing is what the character demands or if he's just like not into what he's doing. Sure. You know? Um, and I, I don't know if you feel this way, but my feeling on Buscemi is that I don't know I've ever seen him in something where he's like giving to the audience, I don't want to be here. Right. You know what I mean? Like he, he and he's done some stuff that feels way below his caliber you know it's not like well he only does good movies that's not what i'm saying at all but i just feel like when i see him in anything even if it's something utterly fucking ridiculous he feels fully present in a way that i don't know that we always get from eric roberts we still get it a lot from eric roberts but again when we talk about people working a lot what there there was one year where eric roberts was in what 58 projects or something it's (laughs) out of control (laughs) it is it is i mean we're talking about a different way of working as an actor right and i mean it's a little unfair to compare the two i imagine in in some ways um but i mean it was an interesting thing you just said where you don't really ever see steve buscemi quote unquote phoning in and i imagine those movies that you were talking about being below his his ability, you were thinking of one of any number of Sandler verse movies. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it, but I was thinking it. Yes, and I'm sure it's not just that. That's that's what immediately comes to mind. But uh, you know, he is active enough. I'm sure there's things he's in those thing that those things are not great. But I just don't have a I don't have a catalog of things where I'm like, oh, here's all the shitty things that Buscemi's done. Liam, what do you think about fashion? The world of fashion. Um, I feel like, and this might be entirely in my head, it excludes me as a fat man, as mm. a as a man of girth and carriage, uh, and that if I was not this, if I had somehow magically transformed into a into a skinny skinny winnie, I would be stoked on fashion. Although I'd still have the other barrier, which is I'm poor. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, but I think I could be someone during the times when I mean, I, let's be clear, I've always felt like a large person, even though now in retrospect, I was not always a large person sure. because mm-hmm. that's how our culture works is that it right. convinces you you're fat, whether you are or not. Um, and so like 260 pound me looks back on uh 200 pound me and goes, look at that sexy man. But when I was 200 pounds, I felt very large. However, sure. it was easier for me to find clothes that fit. I was someone who had a sense of fashion. I just always felt like the coolest clothes were reserved for, people who were very slight and that when when i dressed up fancy it just always felt restrictive i always felt restricted by my own clothes and now that i'm at 260 i literally don't have the money to buy the clothes that would actually fit my body so a lot of the clothes i have are literally i can't fit into them anymore liam i've always been a gigantic gentleman um, like just a very large person in every yeah. way, very you're tall, de- right? I you're, mean, de- you're, defend- you're descended from angels. You're one of those yes. Nephilim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, gotcha. right? I can't even explain to you how many eyes I have. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but I've often, this might, I've, maybe I've never admitted this before, I've often fantasized about the idea of going into like a used clothing store and just being able to try on things. Yeah. Right? Just being yeah. able to try on clothes and just make, match things together as opposed to, oh, there might be one or two things that fit me here and if, if they're terrible, then I just won't buy them. And if they're even decent, I will buy them. That's just the reality. That's been my reality since I was a kid for the most part. Sure. So it's – it. I have never really connected with the whole world of fashion. And maybe I have a little bit of, of resentment towards it. Though I did find it interesting to hear your perspective on it simply because you run a shirt company. <laughs> well, that's the thing is that I, I think of what we're doing as more about fandom – Sure. Uh, I, 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 I'm not saying our shirts fit poorly. I'd like to think that they fit well, especially when... I'm wearing one right now. 
Yeah. Oh, you are? Which one? The basket case one. Oh, I like that one a lot. Um, yeah. Especially when we have access to other shirt uh, manufacturers. So, like, right now we're rocking Gildan. I'd rather us be doing comfort colors. And not everyone likes comfort colors, but I like the fit and stuff. However, I think you could be into our shirts because you like the design and not really care about what people mean when they say fashion. I, at a certain point, was into actual fashion, though the fashion I was into was never, like, super cool. Like, I wasn't following, like, Fashion Week in New York. But, right. like, but like, did I have email lists I was on because they might have cheap Fred Perry's or I might be able to find like specific brands that I like. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just, again, even at the time when I was uh, much, it was much easier for me to do what you said, go into a used clothing store and find something that fit me. I think I had that mental disorder that a lot of people have where everything felt wrong. I've always right. felt mm-hmm. I, I've always felt out of place in my own body, even though in retrospect, my body was fine. Like I've never been thin, but like, you know, I certainly was not a large person, it, but at, but I felt like I was. And I think that's more common. And I think it is restrictive. Like when I've talked to people who are very much not stoked on fashion, a lot of times the reason is their body. Now, sometimes it's because they just don't give a fuck. But I've definitely met people for whom the perception that they're not the kind of person who gets to care about clothing, and that seems highly unfair. And I know it's not true because uh, someone who does care about clothing who is themselves a, a large person is uh, uh, Canadian and the only Canadian I like really besides you, uh, Maddie Matheson. Uh, <laughs> he, he People might make fun of what he wears, but he clearly care, he cares yeah, about what he wears. Absolutely. He has a style and he is a large man. And so every time I see him, I go, oh, I could dress like that. I could dress like however I want if I want to, if I make the time to find those clothes. But for some reason, it still feels like a door that I can't go through for some reason. You know what I mean? Liam, I bring up fashion for a reason, and this is from an article from Complex.com. It's entitled, Kith Unveils Spring 22 Collection Featuring Steve Buscemi in Campaign. Now, a lot of these words don't mean anything to me, so I'm going to (laughs) read a little bit of this article. Um, Steve Buscemi fans, a category of individuals that may very well include the bulk of the global population, (laughs) just a little editorial here, wish some of those people would listen to a podcast about him, have plenty to celebrate (laughs) thanks to the rollout of a new Kith campaign. Hopefully it it is uh, pronounced Kith, by the way. I'd feel very embarrassed if I was getting that wrong. The Sopranos and King of Staten Island actor has been enlisted by the Ronnie Feig-founded brand for its spring 2022 collection, which launches this week via Kith Shops and Online. Photographing the decade-strong acting force is Sebastian Kim with Styling by Feig. So it's a series of photos of Steve Buscemi wearing these different fashions, Liam. I've included a photo uh, here. Uh, He's wearing kind of two layers and a, a nice jaunty bucket hat. What do you think? Steve Buscemi as a fashion model. Do you think... There's a level of irony there that you don't enjoy? It's kind of a loaded question. I mean, I'm going to say no, actually, only because mm-hmm. he's done this sort of thing before. Uh, not just him, right? There's there's, yeah. a, there's a whole, uh, let's call them uh, gaggle, of uh, slightly older but recognizable male actors who've been doing fashion shows for quite a while. They do, they do campaigns as well, but I've definitely seen him at shoots at the same – um, not shoots. Uh, at the same shows where I've seen like Adrian Brody or sure. Martin Scorsese or blah 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 blah, whoever it is, I've seen. I've seen Buscemi at those too, and and I think it's because they're just recognizable, respectable men who we're pretty sure. Well, 
I was going to say we're pretty sure don't suck, but I don't know. I don't know anything about Adrian Brody, so I'll keep that to myself. But in the case of Steve Buscemi, he definitely – You mean the Rasta man himself? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, Steve, but Steve Buscemi, he's, he's just a guy that like you get positive energy from him. And at least in the case of Steve Buscemi and probably Scorsese too, there's a certain bohemian perception. You, We all really do believe, regardless of the characters he plays, that he's cool, right? He yeah. seems like he's probably actually cool. Even looking at this outfit they have him in, which, you know, any fashion shoot, you're pushing the boundaries and things that might not look right. If, right. You, t- if you take this dumbass fucking bucket hat off of him, <laughs> the rest of this outfit, I would 100% believe he would wear. Like 100%. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's, I also think there's there is an advantage to having more reasonable shaped and looking yes, people yes. as models in this case to for people who might actually want to buy these things and put them on their body and trying to envision what it would look like. I mean, I know it doesn't envelop the fantasy of the most beautiful people in the world wearing it, but it does seem like it, this is kind of the best of both worlds type scenario where you have oh. a more realistic person and you have well, I mean, the very fact that Steve Buscemi is also a nice, huge yeah, advantage. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. Rec- <laughs> he's recognizable, I think, for not everyone, but a chunk of people, he's very handsome. You know what I mean? Like, And for the people who maybe don't think he's handsome, he's still striking, which is maybe yes. part of what you want. Um, and again, like I said, good energy. I mean, this whole thing, too, about like maybe you don't want the same beautiful 20-year-olds. I've tried to make this case for the very reason we were just discussing about my insecurities around fashion. My way to get around that has been, hey, Fred, someone do a model shoot with me. Because right. I think it's like, you know, jumping into a pit of crocodiles. Or, well, that maybe is too dramatic. But, you know, something you would do <laughs> doing karaoke when you're afraid of being in front of people. I sure. I, I want to do this. I want to do like a, a trauma therapy to myself to like force myself to like think of uh, think of myself as attractive again, you know. <laughs> Liam, did you watch the big game this year? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Doug, you know the answer to that. No, no, you know, no, no shade to fans of uh, gladiator sports, but I'm, I'm not really stoked on, on, on football or the big game. Yeah, Liam, you, you messaged me and said that I'm not watching the sports ball game today. I thought it was a little. <laughs> A little out there. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're such a big f- fan of the hand egg. Uh, yeah, I, I certainly am. I know. I certainly could name the two teams that played in the big game this year. No problem whatsoever. But let's not bore the audience with such details. The reason I'm bringing up that game. I, I just want to stop you here, Doug. <laughs> I can't remember, but I for a second thought I could. I actually did pay attention to the score of the game this year. Okay. Because, because a record label I like bet money and if the team who lost had won they were going to do a massive sale on all their stuff because they would have won a fuck ton of money oh interesting the odds were very against one of the teams maybe cincinnati i don't i don't know which one one of the teams had really bad odds and so he he bet like 500 bucks and he's like yo if i win this everything in the store is half off tomorrow and i was like (laughs) fuck i want to get some records isn't it nice i mean there is a part of me that fully understands why people bet on sports because it really creates a deep investment that I would not have otherwise. <laughs> right. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so you had an investment in the big game, uh, and I guess the Bengals were in there. Um, sorry. Yeah, I think they were. It was the and the and the Rams, right? The L.A. Rams, because they played in L.A. I think. 
I think that's right. I know that uh, listeners that Benjels is not how that's pronounced. I was just having. I was just going to let it go. I wasn't even going to address it. <laughs> but the reason I bring up the big game is that because there are uh, one of the things people love when watching this game, not just getting together with friends, not just watching the sport itself, not just enjoying delicious salty snacks. They also love the Super Bowl. Oops, I said it. Commercials. Commercials. Yeah. Oh, I love advertising. I love. You know what? I love living in capitalism. I love <laughs> watching things that I couldn't possibly afford to. Purchase purchase and i love get this steve Buscemi, who appeared in one of the super bowl commercials this year liam uh this is an article from variety it's entitled steve Buscemi goes bowling for michelob ultra's super bowl story so this is a this is a a, a combination of two things that i love not only steve Buscemi, but a commercial paying tribute to the coen brothers film the big lebowski liam you big uh, lebowski head <laughs> is that what they call him? <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, I, I, until I was aware of the actual phenomena, I thought I was. I was like, "Yeah, I'm a big Lebowski guy." And then yeah. I found out about the people who go to like events and shit, and I was like, "Okay, I'm not that big." My, my favorite thing about those people is how little of a shit the Coen brothers give about it. It's, it's like they're asked about it all the time. It's like you know, when we finish a movie, we just kind of move on to the next one. We don't really think about it. It's just like this whole cult of people who've come, yeah. changed their entire yeah. lifestyle to match a character, and they're like, eh, okay, all right, whatever. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's benefiting them in any significant way outside of people, I guess, buying and renting the movie. Steve Sammy, the actor, he appeared in this Big Lebowski-themed commercial, playing not a named character, but obviously someone inspired by his Donnie character, who, uh, spoiler alert, dies in the Big Lebowski. Um, dies and is uh, turned into uh, dust through a process called cremation. Uh, so this is a, an interesting commercial um, that features a lot of sports stars. And as I already mentioned before, I'm a big sports head, so I know who they are. No big deal there. Certainly recognized more than just Peyton Manning and Serena Williams in this particular commercial. Lots of other people in there, Liam. I feel a little embarrassed about the fact that I don't know who they were. But uh, fun to see a, a little tribute to uh, the Big Lebowski. Maybe a little bit more fun. Than the John Turturro filmed, directed sequel to The Big Lebowski that came out a few years ago oh, to God. Little Fanfare. <laughs> yeah. Where a, um, a an openly described pederast, I guess, is supposed to be a, um, a a character that we're supposed to like in that particular movie. I couldn't I couldn't do it, man. That's, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. What's your beer of choice? <laughs> uh, ginger beer. Yeah, I mean, notoriously, Liam, you are straight edge, so you uh, don't care for the taste or feel of alcohol. In fact, you are very upset at people who do enjoy that. How do you feel about our friend Steve Buscemi here uh, hawking uh, alcoholic beverages? I don't care about Doug. What do you think this is? Come on. I mean, I will say that uh, the the commercial, though, I do like s- s- that he's in it, and I I do enjoy the Big Lebowski. The commercial was kind of dumb. Yeah, but it's like, not that great. But it does have it does pay like direct tribute to a sequence from the movie. Yeah, I guess. But also like, why have him as the the shoe guy? Like the shoe guy yeah. isn't even an yeah. important. Yeah, his role appearance in, the movie. in it is a little strange. Uh, in in theory, that. he's reprising the Saddam Hussein role if it's the dream sequence. Oh yeah, maybe. There's a little quote from this Variety article. It says, I didn't even try and bowl while I was there, said Steve Buscemi, who did in fact get bowling lessons for the Coen brothers Lebowski, but hasn't really thrown strikes and spears in a while. I'm not going to embarrass myself. I'll just hang out and do my job. And that's what he was doing, hanging out and doing his job while some of the world's finest and most uh, respected athletes performed in front of him. Liam. 
do you think all those folks are actually good at bowling? Because bowling and any other sport are completely unrelated. I always think about the fact that it seems like there's a lot of crossover between famous sports athletes and golf, which I also think wouldn't be a um, a skill that necessarily would transfer, but they all seem to play it. I, I just assume golf is a status thing. I just, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm no expert on as sports of any kind. But it's kind of a I, fancy pants thing, which is kind of ironic because the pants yeah. that people wear when playing golf are not fancy at all. No, it's a bummer. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Yeah. You ever play yeah. golf? You ever play it, Liam? I've never played full golf. I've done like mini golf and driving ranges, and I've done the chip and putt, you know? So it's like they've mm. shrunk a golf course. But as far as like having to drive on a full course, I've never done that. I've been in, I've been invited to do it, but uh, what I found is that um, if you don't have your own clubs, sometimes the cost of renting clubs is like fucking astronomical. I guess it depends on where you're at, but sure. at least the place that people wanted me to go – and then it was like, well, you can borrow my clubs. And I realized, like, oh, I need multiple clubs. Like, I need to know what all these fucking things do. Like, I, you know, the the visceral experience of nailing a golf ball is sick. That shit yeah, is. That's why awesome. driving ranges are so much fun. Yeah, but the idea that then after that I gotta care about anything else, just no, thank you. I'm not. Interested. But also the idea that if you were to play it for the first time on a real course, you'd be very bad at it. I mean, of course you would. Uh, I mean, that's not just you. Anyone would. So you're trying to get better at it while you're playing with people who might be already okay at it. And that's that's not a good position to be in. No. I mean, that's actually been a – that's, I mean, in theory, right? I probably was going to be bad at all these things anyway. But that kept, <laughs> that kept me from a certain amount of tabletop gaming. You know, sure. by the time I got into it, all my friends were already good. Uh, skateboarding. You know, I was the last of my friends to get a skateboard. By the time I could figure out how to get it to go, they were already like ollieing over shit and stuff. And I was like, well, I guess I can't do I that. I mean, at least some of those things you can kind of practice at home, right? I mean, true, true. But, but uh, you can't, you actually can't po- practice gaming at home. You have to practice gaming with other people. What kind of tabletop gaming are you talking about? Uh, they loved Dominion. I was actually pretty good at the first thing of Settlers. Uh, but they even surpassed me at Settlers because, uh, you know, right now there's like 20 different versions of Settlers. But at the time, there was just Settlers, uh, Pirates. Now, when you say Settlers, you mean Settlers of Catan, the yeah, 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 board yeah. game. Yeah. So uh, there there was a thing where there was the three versions of Settlers. It was like Cities and Knights and then like maybe like Pirates or something. I don't know. But there was an online hack where you could combine all three versions into a super oh, game. And okay. they were playing that shit. And I tried to play it. And I couldn't, I couldn't even keep up. And I had been one of, like, I had been very good. And now, and then I tried to learn Dominion, and they were all very good. At, it's like, at a certain point, and I'm sure this is true in certain sports too. But I, at least in games, if everyone at the table is playing at a nine and you're at level one, you can't even have fun, man. Like everyone just beats you up and you just can't even get into the game really. And that was my experience. I just was like, well, I don't care. This isn't interesting enough to me to like get beat up every night for of the week to like learn how to do it right. You know, board games are a little tricky like that because the worst thing is to, 
I mean, I guess the most common thing is that you are trying to play a board game and nobody knows how to play it and everyone's right. learning together, right? And there is an advantage to having one person who does know how to play it who can help you along if you get a little confused, that sort of thing. But the idea of having like four people and three of them know how to play it and one person doesn't at all, that sounds like a nightmare scenario for that person who doesn't <laughs> know how to play it. Um, someone tried to teach me Euchre once, the card game Euchre. Sure, and yeah. That's a very complex game. And like I was getting everything wrong. And they were like, we're trying to play here. And it's just like, I don't fucking know what's going on. And of course, the worst thing is, because I'm not a very smart person, as soon as I left that room, I forgot everything that they taught me. So, sure, yeah. So so don't play Euchre. That's the rule to take away <laughs> from this episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids. The other thing to learn today, Liam, is that we're going to talk about Robert Rodriguez's 1995 action film, Desperado. Now, before we get into our break, and then we're going to return to talk about this film, I think we both share complicated feelings about the director, Robert Rodriguez, which is an odd thing to feel, because I would have considered myself, all throughout the late 90s and early 2000s, quite a big fan of his. When did you, Liam, turn the corner on Robert Rodriguez as a director? Hmm, that's a pretty good question. I don't know that I have an exact point. Um, I, I mean, okay. For me, um, probably Once Upon a Time in Mexico was the beginning of my feeling of like, I don't know if I love this guy as a as a director. You know, does that make sense? I think so. Though, does that represent your opinion on that film? Hmm... The reason I ask is because we before we started recording, you said that you thought it was okay. So it's not like it's a movie you outright dislike. No, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think I outright dislike it. But I think it was the beginning of me thinking that maybe he wasn't everything I wanted him to be. You know, I mean, okay, like no judgment, but I wasn't stoked on the Spy Kids films. Right? Sure. Well, that's fair enough, right? Uh, yeah, and I, I think that's okay. I don't think anyone's going to be mad about that. But it just wasn't my thing. Then. He does these three Spy Kids films. Then he does Once Upon a Time in Mexico. And now it's fine. It's a fine movie. But it doesn't feel to me like a fitting sequel to Desperado. It just feels mm. disjointed. And then right after that was Sin City. And I really didn't like Sin City, which I I don't think was a popular opinion at the time. I think most people liked it. And I, I didn't hate it, but I just was like, I don't care about it. It just didn't click for me. And then... There was nothing after that. Like I, I don't love Planet Terror, which I guess what is about actually, Machete? Yeah, I, I. So I wouldn't say I disliked him. I just started to think, okay, this guy's fine, but he's not like a home run, you know? Because I thought Planet Terror was fine. I thought Machete was fine, um, and then just uh, post uh, Machete, uh, but right before Machete Kills come out came out rather uh was all the things with him just acting like a bit of a jerk off you know um going to film festivals and causing issues during his own screenings uh yelling at people at stuff uh he had a big uh messy situation with his ex-wife uh which by the way allowed her to open her own studio so i guess that's cool but uh Liam, you know what's one thing? I, I feel bad about how much i dislike this but the fact that he plays his guitar while directing Every time I saw like a behind the scenes thing of him doing that, I'm yeah. all, at first I was like, "Look at this cool fucking guy!" But the fact that he just kept doing it for all of his movies, I was just like, "That's that's enough. That's fucking enough." All right. 
<laughs> just seems self-indulgent in a way that I think a lot. Anyway, we're going to get into this. I don't want to spill the beans on my feelings on Robert Rodriguez, who I think is very talented, by the way. And also someone I found very inspirational. I find my feelings about him, they really do match in some ways my feelings about Kevin Smith, which is odd because one of the things that I most complain about with Kevin Smith is the fact that he never really evolved. And in some ways, my complaint about uh, Robert Rodriguez is that he evolved a little too much, that he became a little too slick in a way that I didn't like. What I'm saying is I'm a man of contrast. I think we're going to take a little break here, Liam. When we return, we're going to talk about 1995's Desperado. I was visiting a bar, and in he walked. You saw his face? His face? No. I mean, every step he took towards the light, just when you thought his face was about to be revealed, it wasn't. It was as if the lights dimmed. Just for him. They called him a loner. I know who you are. Really? You kill drug dealers. I killed the woman I loved. You ruined my life. They called him a miss. You've heard stories of that man that carries a guitar case full of weapons. Find him and kill him. I hope you don't think you can take someone like Ucho all by yourself. Really? They made the mistake of calling his bluff. Is there something in the guitar case? My guitar? No. It's time to face the music. Let's play. Former musician and gunslinger El Mariachi arrives at a small Mexican border town after being away for a long time. His past quickly catches up with him, and he soon gets entangled with the local drug kingpin Bucho and his gang. It's the film Desperado from 1995, directed by Robert Rodriguez, an American filmmaker and visual effects supervisor, probably best known for kind of rising up uh, through the ranks of Hollywood, starting with a very low-budget movie, uh, El Mariachi, the film that this is a sequel to, uh, on a very, very low budget. Um, he was actually able to gross upwards of $2.6 million, which doesn't seem like a lot, but it had a budget of only $7,000. He used that to launch into making uh, bigger-budget movies, including Desperado, even though Desperado was kind of known for being uh, low budget for the kind of movie it is, a big action movie. And then he went on to make much more kind of mainstream movies, including things that we've already referred to, movies like Sin City, uh, movies like uh, Battle Angel Alita, and now he has been uh, directing some of those Star Wars television shows recently as well. Also well known for his collaborations, uh, both personally and professionally, with Quentin Tarantino, like Grindhouse, like From Dust Till Dawn. I'm sure we'll get into some of those as we talk about it. Also written by Robert Rodriguez in this case, and starring, uh, maybe launching the career at least the, the leading man hunky career of Antonio Banderas, playing El Mariachi here, as well as uh, the movie that kind of broke Salma Hayek as an actress. Uh, also some other recognizable faces, including Cheech Marin, Quentin Tarantino himself appears here, Steve Buscemi, of course, we'll talk about, uh, Joaquin de, uh, de Almeida as Bucho, who I think is actually terrific in this, uh, as well as the uh, the star of the original El Mariachi, Carlos Gallardo, as Campa, who shows up uh, about three quarters of the way through this film. I'm sure we'll talk about that in just a little bit as well. But let's get right into it, Liam. Your thoughts on... Actually, let me change the question around a little bit. I want to get your thoughts both on Desperado as a film and whether your opinion on it has changed since the uh, the time that you saw it first. That's interesting. That sort of readjusts some of my thinking a little bit. But okay, let me just straight up say, 
that because I don't have a lot of positive feelings towards Robert Rodriguez, I kind of went into this of feeling a little more negative. Sure. And I think a lot of this movie still works for me. Um, mm-hmm. I certainly appreciate the ways in which this film is indebted to other films. Sure. Uh, I think there's a lot of John Woo in here, as well as a couple visual references to other sort of surprising things. Like there's a sequence that reminds me of uh, Argento. Sure, um, absolutely. With, uh, with the wall and stuff. So I, you know, there's, there's just a, there's, there's some interesting references here that I appreciate. And with um, the understanding that there, that this was before everyone was doing their John Woo impression. Right. Exactly. Well, 100%. Right. And that probably for a lot of people, this might've been one of the ways that they got into John Woo. Was absolutely. That, the influence. Right. Um, uh, I, when I first saw this movie, thought Antonio Banderas was the coolest human who had ever existed and mm-hmm. that uh, Salma Hayek was the most attractive woman who had ever existed. And I assumed that I would just, uh, that for the rest of my life, I would just mourn that I was not them uh, uh, loving each other because that's that would be the best, would be to be both of them at the same time because they're both amazing, right? And sure. uh, and watching it now, I was like, oh, it's pretty, it's pretty good. You know, like it, I certainly, my opinion of Antonio Banderas has lessened and so seeing him in this was a reminder of like why do you think that is um at at least in the sense of what this movie tries to play up i actually appreciate younger antonio banderas in um in pedro almodovar yes thank you so much Mm -hmm. in the films of pedro almodovar uh i've come to appreciate that a lot uh but he hasn't done he hasn't done anything recently that i'm particularly into and i certainly don't think of him now as like the hottest man alive. There was just something about him <laughs> in this role that really clicked for me. And watching this, even though it's not really my style, I still was like, oh, I could see I can see why this really had a hold of so many people for so long. Um and and Selma Hayek's still great. It was like, you know, that was the other realization. Was like, oh, right, Selma Hayek is great. You know, but I just, you know, she maybe isn't as compelling in, like, The Eternals or whatever. But Sure. Right. Uh, <laughs> but still, you know, I still appreciate her or whatever. Uh, one of the things I remember from the time, right, is that I saw Desperado, and I, and I liked it. I thought it was really great. But I, I wasn't in love with it. I actually got more in love with it. I think this is a difference between our two relationships to this film. Sure. I got more in love with it after I found out the, about the El Mariachi thing. Sure. And I saw El Mariachi, and I loved El Mariachi, mm-hmm. even though I also was cognizant of the idea that Desperado was sort of El Mariachi-like, I don't know, on steroids. It was like, it was like you know, the, the same thing in a lot of ways, but at this much higher level. Sure. Right? <laughs> But there was also a part of me that felt like, and maybe this is just a weird bias from me at the time, being in the, in the community I was in, but there was just something more legit about El Mariachi. So as much as I liked Desperado, it just felt cooler to like El Mariachi. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And no, and that actually is a really important point to make, that I do think that some of the opinion of Desperado has cooled simply because... It's a lot cooler to like El Mariachi, even though it's a much rougher movie. And, and I mean, for for obvious reasons. Yeah. I, and I guess there was a part of me that just appreciated the effort and the sort of plucky whatever it took to even make. Like, El Mariachi is like a fucking magic trick. Like, how did you even make this goddamn movie? Like, how did you pull this off? The thing is, the more you read about how he did it, it even feels like more of a magic trick. Yeah. Right? Oh, 100%. Whereas Desperado, it's like, 
he didn't have a blank check for Desperado. There wasn't a $400 million budget on this thing, but it still feels like more like he's doing the thing and he has the support he needs to do it, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, 100%. Um, on this rewatch, I think some things were a little more obvious to me, like how uh, it's very much a, a man movie. Like there's something very, uh, well, let's just say traditionally masculine about it because I don't think um, it would appeal to all uh, people who identify as men. And I and I guess, you know, for some, for some folks, there, there, there's an appeal to the machismo of it all, but yeah. it, it was a little overwhelming to me this time whereas when i first saw it it did that did not occur to me at all doug there was no i had no <laughs> feminist lens you know there was no like oh i don't know about this one um and i also felt a little bit more on this viewing i was a little less enamored of the character of hmm. the mariachi because at a certain point i'm like he gets a lot of fucking people killed and I'm not sure how worth it it is the getting all the people killed. You know what I mean? Like it was like that had never occurred to me before. Um whereas I I I'm of the opinion and people might disagree that at least in some of the John Woo films as well as other Hong Kong action films that probably influence this movie or or at least are in that scene, that community of films, there's a bit of a feeling of like all these gangsters and cops shooting everyone that maybe this is a bad thing. You sure. know what I mean? Like, like they, they, maybe honor calls for this, but there's something sad or, or bad about that. And this movie, I, there's no, I don't get any melancholy off of this per se. It's just for, at least on this watch, it felt like, yeah, lots of people are going to die. It's fine. This is just what is happening. <laughs> and I just, I found that like that the first time it occurred to me, whereas that had never occurred to me before. One thing I really loved about this watch is really noticing the couple of times when Americans wander into this town. Yes, yes. And I just think that that's so funny, right? This is like they're there's just completely oblivious people who wandered into basically this town that is just founded and lives on death. And it's just a normal part of their everyday life. And they're just completely out of place simply because that's something that you just don't see in movies and didn't at the time and still don't at this point. I um, also think that time had a certain brand of preppy white person that I don't certainly. even know if they exist anymore. Like, mm-hmm. did those people just die off or something? Because <laughs> in a movie like this, whenever they're like, bring in the white teenagers, you're like, who are those jerks? Those people would get beat up at my local mall. Like, you know, like, who are they? Uh, I will say that I came into this viewing in a similar way to you and that I was feeling I'm, I'm a little negative on Robert Rodriguez uh, generally and I didn't expect to enjoy myself and then I was surprised to find myself enjoying it very much and maybe uh, it, there's a nostalgic aspect of it because I did watch this movie a lot in the late 90s and probably in the early days of DVDs as well I watched it over and over uh, and I really do enjoy the performances and I, and I do think that Antonio Banderas is just boy he's hot it's just uh, yeah, hard yeah. to you know, this is something I just found out a couple of days ago, and I put it on Twitter, and people were very surprised to discover that the second choice for the role of El Mariachi in this was John Leguizamo, Liam. Gross. I mean, I, I, <laughs> what's funny is I like John Leguizamo. In Me fact, too. I think he's terrific. In a current movie, I'd rather see John Leguizamo than Antonio Banderas. Hi, I have that. Sorry, I, just to interrupt you. I think Antonio Banderas is terrific now. Did you not see Pain and Glory? He was fucking amazing. In you're it. right. I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. And the he skin is, I live in, which I only saw for the first time last year, and I was so blown away. Okay. Okay. But the skin I live in is not a contemporary movie. It's actually old. 
Uh, and so be, 2011. It's I mean to me that's that fucking, might as well have no, been last fucking year. No, that's fucking old. He's he's washed. He's basically washed. And uh, I would say like you're right. He's amazing in Pain and Glory. But all we're saying is our continuing point. I love him in an Almodovar movie. <laughs> yeah, well, but tell enough. me a non-Almodovar movie he's done in the last six years that you are like stoked to see. Well, he doesn't do a lot of stuff, but he's going to be in the new Indiana Jones movie. Again, case made, <laughs> point made. Sorry, you were saying something just a moment ago, which I'm sure you've forgotten at this point. No, all I'm saying is I love John Leguizamo, <laughs> but the idea of him in this role is, I, I wouldn't call it offensive, but it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fucking work. Like, you know what I mean? And I love, I, I really do. Like, uh, you know, I get that we're all still mad at him about the past, but if you ignore the past, like, he's done some great stuff. He's he done really amazing stuff. A yeah. great he's, actor. He's been the highlight of terrible movies a lot yeah. as well. But the yeah. idea that in the 90s, or was this 90s? 95. 95, yes, yeah. Come on now. There's a part of me that's kind of like, is it is it, is it it 90s or ladies? Um, just, okay, just stop for a moment and think about Quentin Tarantino in this movie, and right. then you will yes. know that this is the 90s. 95, right, right, right. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, the idea of Leguizamo in the 90s in this role? I know. There's no fucking way, man. The whole As movie House would, of Buggin era fucking John Leguizamo here. The movie would fall apart. Because it's not even, this is pre, uh, I, I, I'm bad at timeline, so help me yep. out here. Yep. This is pre Romeo and Juliet yeah, like was two on, years right? earlier than Romeo and Juliet and when you saw I mean tell me if I'm wrong but when you saw him in Romeo and Juliet you were like what the fuck is going on with John Leguizamo yeah like, I feel like that was a new thing for him that was not for like, me that was the guy from Super Mario Brothers for me right, at that point. right yes yes <laughs> <laughs> oh I, I but that was post the pest though right am i wrong no the pest was 96 i believe so it would have been after this yeah yeah, uh, yeah. super mario brothers was back in 93 so a couple years earlier no all i mean is for me he was the guy in the pest that's right (laughs) well i mean that's fair enough it was a starring vehicle uh liam i want to talk about how much of a hypocrite i am for a moment which is that when i was getting into watching movies in the 1990s and renting all i could my favorite director was Sam Raimi because I discovered the, the Evil Dead, the original Evil Dead, and the idea that someone could get together with friends and make a movie and get it distributed and use that to launch into a Hollywood career, which at that point he already was a Hollywood director. You know, it would have been like 93, 94, right? Because it would have been post Army of Darkness. Um, that to me was like the dream. It's like, oh my God, and people can make a movie. I could be a director. I could know people who made movies and it got me interested in micro-budget filmmaking. It got me interested in filmmaking in general and the process of it. It really was my launching point for, for that. And Robert Rodriguez was a continuation of that. And I read his book, Rebel Without a Crew, and I thought he was this amazing, influential, and inspirational figure. And in some ways, I still think of it. I also love that when he released his movies on DVD, he'd have all these special features. He'd explain how he did all of those things. He really wanted people to follow his lead in regards to making movies himself. I even love the fact that when he made Sin City, the idea that he was setting up basically a mini studio at his house that he could make movies. I mean, that's a brilliant idea. I don't understand why I still love Sam Raimi and that I have all these negative feelings about Robert Rodriguez, particularly because Sam Raimi went on to make a bunch of really not great Hollywood movies. Right? He made some really great stuff as well, don't get me wrong. Um, and the fact that he is probably almost certainly a Republican is something that does cloud my view in some some ways. But the the, the idea that their, their career trajectories are, have actually been, been very... Similar, and in some ways, Robert Rodriguez has made more of an effort to maintain his credibility. Why is it that I don't like Robert Rodriguez while I still like Sam Raimi? 
It's because uh, I'm a hypocrite. I don't think so. I I, I don't know. I I uh, well, okay. Let me think about that actually. Because I think that Sam Raimi has, as you said, done some bad things, but he's also done some more recent memory stuff that's pretty good. That was sure. also a bit of a surprise. And because while he probably, as you said, is an asshole, uh, he's been less publicly an asshole. So I think the combination of A, Robert Rodriguez hasn't done much in recent memory that's that exciting although i did watch his most recent kids movie with my child unintentionally i didn't realize it was a robert rodriguez movie but she picked it and we watched it and you know it's i don't think it's going to win back his uh you know uh desperado fans per se but if you like the spy kids movies it seems in line with that i guess i don't you know what i mean People so like, did seem to really like his mandalorian work though i i haven't seen that though there were some very mixed feelings on his work on the boba fett series yeah i i'm i'm kind of not sh- yeah he, he's fine it's fine i've yeah. got another wrinkle to add to this which is that that quentin tarantino also kind of a, an asshole i mean certainly an asshole sure. I think, yeah right yeah, yeah. And, and some uh, unrepentantly so I still love his movies a lot, and I've continued to love his career as it's gone along. And I mean, it, it feels like a lot of the shittiness that tended to poison me to later Robert Rodriguez films that that exists a lot in Tarantino. But I I I feel very differently about their most recent work in particular. Maybe I mean we're getting at the fact that the type of material that Quentin Tarantino makes just appeals to me more. But at this point, I mean, it just felt like they were two sides of the same coin. I don't I don't think they were ever I I I think from El Mariachi to now the idea that Rodriguez and Tarantino were two sides of the same coin which I think they felt at a certain point Sure I've always thought was dumb In fact when they announced the the dual movies I thought well those are two directors who don't belong together <laughs> But I mean, I, what about the what about the time that they did collaborate on from well they've done it a few times, but in From Dust Till Dawn, right? A that true movie, collaboration. that movie sucks. I thought it sucked at the time, and I think it sucks now. I loved it at the time. I think it sucks. I think it's not a good movie. I didn't like it then. In fact, that's what I thought. I like legitimately when I saw it, I thought, oh, man, hopefully this doesn't set a trend for these guys because I like them both. Um, but I I don't think it's good. I I, I think it's bad. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not uh it's not bordello of blood bad, but uh but it's pretty it's pretty bad. Um which is I get that's sacrilege for some people. I just I just don't enjoy it, you know. Um I, again, even when I really liked Robert Rodriguez, I just feel differently about Tarantino's movies. And I still feel that way. I just think there's something else going on with Tarantino, which isn't necessarily great. If there are probably people listening who Fucking hate Tarantino. I know a lot of people who fucking hate Tarantino. And with good reason. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you're wrong for that. All I'm saying is I just think when people were fascinated with this resurgence of themes from exploitation cinema, you know, which had only really been like 20 years earlier, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, There was a lot of ascribing meaning to a lot of things that were just kind of edgy. As much as I think Robert Rodriguez was very skillful and talented, I don't think there was as much thought into what he was doing as people ascribed. Whereas with Tarantino, I'm not sure all that thought is good, but I do think he is always thinking about what he's doing. I think there's a lot going on with Tarantino that doesn't necessarily make the movies good, 
but I think there's a lot more thought. Whereas I think Rodriguez is is talented, which is not necessarily the same thing. Hmm. It's just I I have trouble squaring my feelings on it sometimes, and I worry that maybe maybe part of it is that I haven't seen a lot of recent Robert Rodriguez's work, so I feel a little out of my depth in talking about it. But the reason I haven't is because I felt a little negative on the things that I have seen. Uh, and and also indulgence is a r- really strange word to use, right? Because we're talking about a director like Quentin Tarantino who's who's overtly self-indulgent in everything he does. And Robert Rodriguez in some ways isn't as indulgent in some of the stuff that he I does. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Uh, I, what, I, what, I, I think for me, it, it really is just... I like Tarantino movies and I've only gotten negative about Tarantino because of the stories coming about, about his like real life and actual behavior on set. Right. That's, of course. that's the only real poisoning for me and the possible feeling that he's a little too free with, with, the, with the N word. But, uh, but other than that, like the movies I think are mostly good. I haven't turned on the movies. Rodriguez, it was like, I was starting to turn on the movies and then stuff came out about him being maybe a jerk off. So those two things sort of melded, which maybe is unfair. But like, if he did something that I thought was really awesome, it might bring me back a little bit. But I, you know, of the things I've seen, nothing has really clicked. What do you think about the action in Desperado? I know we already talked about the fact that John Woo was a clear influence on a lot sure. of it. Also, westerns in general, and spaghetti westerns and things like that. It's a very clear influence on both the plot and the, the look of it. But what do you think about the action in the movie? I think it's very stylistic and fun. I think that um, you have to be willing to suspend all of the disbelief ever. I mean, that's fair enough. <laughs> I mean, that's also true of John Woo, though. Like, you know, John Woo, Absolutely. John Woo was very much of the school of, like, treat every shotgun like a rocket launcher, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you shoot a shotgun at anything, it's going to explode, you know? Um, and, and, I, and I love it in John Woo. Um, here, there's a couple points where I find it goes over a line where I'm kind of like, this is flirting with corny. Sure, um, Absolutely. But it never ruins the movie for me. It's just there's just a couple times where I'm like, ooh, this is maybe getting a little silly. Uh, but I don't know. I, I, I it doesn't make me it doesn't make me dislike the film per se. But it it, it does make it feel like um, if the only reason you're coming is for action, I don't know that it would be entirely fulfilling for people. I do like the fact that we're like. There was a trend of John Woo-style action at this time period that lasted probably right up to, like, 97, 98. And we're not in that anymore. Action is much more kind of um, less stylized now. A lot of it is a lot more hard-hitting for the most part. Or it's ridiculous to such an incredible extreme that it doesn't have any uh, basis in reality whatsoever. So the fact that we're not in the midst of it anymore made me like this more. Because we're not – lots of movies are not doing it. It's not – a lot of movies aren't um, aren't trying to imitate John Woo. And also John Woo has had a very successful career. I guess he has another movie come, – a new Hollywood movie coming out soon as well. But uh, – so I, re- I really like the movie. I like the fact that he's doing it still on a relatively meager budget. And there's obviously a lot of inventiveness. One of the things I do like about Rodriguez is that he likes to do a lot of the work himself, right? He'll do the soundtrack. He'll do the cinematography. He'll do the – you know, he's obviously getting his hands dirty making this. I have read, read some stories about the safety on this set maybe not being quite up to par. It's such a strange thing. You know, when I was a teenager, hearing that would have been like, oh, that's so cool. That's so rock and roll. And now all I'm thinking it's like, don't risk people's lives for, for no goddamn reason just to try to, you know, make it so Antonio Banderas can jump backwards off a building and shoot two people while he's doing it. Yeah, that bums. that's 
I don't think that's worth it. I mean, you're right. There's a part of me that, in you know, with a again, certain- I'm a hypocrite. If I see that that squib explode next to Chow Yun Fat and almost blow his head off, I think that's so fucking cool, right? I mean, it's just, I I, I wish I could square it. I'm not, I'm an inconsistent person sometimes in regards to this stuff. Yeah, I I think detached from it, there's a part of me that's like, oh yeah, people doing crazy stuff to make movies, but it's not really fun when you think about the lives of the actors involved. You know, it's a little like, oh god, okay, all right. (laughs) What what do you think about the Quentin Tarantino role in this movie? So just for people who haven't seen it, uh, which I, I mean, it's a movie that has a reputation to a certain extent, but Quentin Tarantino at this point was still making a pretty strong go of being an actor. Uh, this would have been the same year that Destiny Turns on the Radio came out. I'm sure people know <laughs> that movie. No, I'm sure they don't. But that was a movie that featured Quentin Tarantino pretty heavily. Um, you know, he was already sort of a joke in regards to his performances, particularly after Pulp Fiction because of that annoying character and the fact that he said the N-word about 500 times in like a 10-minute sequence. But here he comes in and sits at the bar and tells a joke. Uh, a pretty good joke, I have to be honest. And then it, and then he gets taken to a back room. I guess he's buying drugs or something. And then all sh- all hell breaks loose in the bar outside. And then he get the thinking that he might be part of why hell, all hell is breaking loose. He gets shot in the head. What do you think about his part in this movie? It's, I mean, it's fine. Anyone could have done it. The, th- I mean, I don't know if that's yes. That's true. That's one hundred percent true. While at the same time, this does seem like a role that's very specifically chosen to be a Quentin Tarantino role. The way that it works is very Tarantino, but if someone else had been in the role doing their thing, it wouldn't have made the movie any worse unless they were really bad. Like, I I just, I don't, there's no, I've never seen Tarantino do anything where I was like, I'm really glad he did that. You mean as an actor, not just generally? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, that might be different. No, no, no. I mean, mean, I'm saying as an actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in his own movies and other people's things, I've never been like, I really think this was the right decision. Like I've never felt that way. I just think, you know, he's, he's fine. He's not really an actor, I don't think. I think this might be the best Quentin Tarantino role because it's supposed to be an annoying, you know, a, a, a character that's annoying that everyone in the scene thinks is annoying, and then he gets taken off and killed, and that's it. I right? think I think this might be the least stinky of the stinky shits. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. There's nothing to say. It's he's any, not doing a South African accent like he did in Django Unchained. True, true. I think I think any any mildly talented actor could do this and be fine, and their character would be annoying in their own way. I just don't. Uh, other than I mean, at the time. If you know who he is, it's like the cool oh, Tarantino's in this Rodriguez film. It's like I remember the trailer so had that part cool. where he says, "Hey, it's cool essay." Like that was in the trailer for this because they were trying to. I mean, he was considered the coolest guy in Hollywood at that point, and they were trying to trade on that a little bit. Oh yeah, I mean, it felt like liking this movie and liking uh, uh, Pulp Fiction. It was, sure. it was like one and the same thing, right? Like it was all part of the same time you know and then for me 
like I saw this and I thought it was pretty cool. And then it was not that long after, actually, because the video store around me was pretty good. But like a few years after, I was like, oh, he has this first movie that's related. And I saw El Mariachi. And that was like a fucking revelation. You know, it was like, oh, okay. All right. I really, really get Desperado now. You know what I mean? Whereas I think, honestly, the first time I saw it, as cool as it was, I, I probably was a little less excited because of the associated with Tarantino because sure. it wasn't Pulp Fiction, <laughs> which to <laughs> me was a whole other thing, you know? But, I mean, that's what makes it so funny that then he followed it up with From Dust Till Dawn, which seems like it would be the best of both worlds, right? A script written by Quentin Tarantino. So you got that, and then you have the direction of Robert Rodriguez, who's shown himself to be this competent action director, and then... It's a movie you don't like. <laughs> it's so bad. I mean, there's like other than the blessing that is Salva Hayek, there's no DNA in it. Like, I guess there's some cool actors in it. Is that cool? I guess. Yeah, Fred Williamson is in it. Well, he's yeah. not cool anymore, but you no, know, he's, he, no. he's a cool presence. Tom Savini, also probably an asshole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying, though? Like, it's just kind of like, uh, I don't know. Hey, whatever. We, we're not here to talk about From Dust Till Dawn. And I'm sure people are going to get mad at me that I don't like it. So, Well, I mean, we've already we've set, set our piece. I did want to say one thing before we talk about Steve Buscemi playing the character of Buscemi in this movie. Yeah, I love Which it. is that I enjoyed re- my rewatch of this very, very much. But this movie, in the final 10 minutes or so, completely falls apart. I don't know what the fuck happened. When he gets to Bucho... And he gets onto his property, and it's revealed that Bucho is his brother, which is a fucking ridiculous thing to reveal in this. Once they reveal that, there was supposed to, I guess, or maybe they even filmed part of it, be a big action scene. Instead, it just kind of fades to white, and then we never see what happens. And I actually also include the the part where... He calls his two friends, who also have guitar cases, now one that shoots rockets and one that two two of them that, that are just uh, straight up machine guns. Like, it gets so ridiculous and over the top at that point. Like, the movie's always ridiculous, but it feels like it's it just like, I'm going to lean into it. So that happens, and then it goes right into the climax of the movie, which doesn't even happen. It happens off screen, and then the movie just fucking ends. It's a really strange final 10, 15 minutes or so. I always wondered if he ran out of money or something. I think there was an issue with that, with with the final yeah. action scene, and or maybe they just couldn't live up to it because it even feels like, like you could chop out the part where the two, where he brings you know the, the actor from El Mariachi comes in with the, the, the guitar cases with the guns and the and the the missile launcher, rocket launcher. Like you could almost cut that entire part out and just have a scene where the the right hand man gets killed in some other way. And you wouldn't even need it, but it feels like that is a huge action scene, and then there's just like nowhere for them to go afterwards. I think that was also why it was cooler to like El Mariachi, because even though El Mariachi is ridiculous, it it's ridiculous, but it's like not goofy ridiculous. Like it's ridiculous while still taking its own world very seriously. You yeah. know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and whereas this, it just gets to the point where it's like. Yeah, we're we're doing fucking whatever. I mean, in the end, that's how I feel about Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Yeah, J- you know, there's a scene where Johnny Depp. I, I mean, think the most Johnny- memorable scene in the entire movie, right, where he goes in and shoots the chef, right? 
Oh, I was going to say. Oh, right? sorry. That's a, I, I thought you were going to. No, talk it is part of the same scene. But the part yeah. that sticks out to me is you filmed Johnny Depp saying, are you a Mexican or a Mexican? Oh, right. Exactly. And like, I get it. Like, I'm Robert Rodriguez. I can make that joke. And I'm like, yeah, it's not that it's offensive. It's that it's dumb. It's a dumb <laughs> joke. It's not worth making. It's just doesn't work. And like, there's a lot of Johnny Depp stuff in that movie that like. I'm sure felt really cool on set, but as a person watching it, I'm going, "Ah, oh, fuck! Come on, guys, what are we doing?" <laughs> the fact that it's Johnny Depp also hasn't helped. I feel like we're we're leaning really heavily on this episode towards, "Hey, this person is, is an asshole, so we don't like their work." Look, I like lots of people's uh, lots. I should say, I like a lot of assholes' work. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> no, no, no. And, and and let me be clear. Like, I I do think. Well, I agree with you that the ending of this movie really doesn't fucking work. This was mostly a positive watch. I I I say I was going in to be negative to make the point that actually it's better than I thought it was going to be, but. You know, when I first fell in love with it, I thought it was like in the top 10 coolest (laughs) fucking movies that's ever existed. And like now I realize like I need to knock it out to make room for more John Woo films. (laughs) Liam, let's talk about Steve Buscemi as Buscemi in this movie. He's sort of the right hand man of the El Mariachi. He goes to towns ahead of time, both to scout out to try to track down Bucho and also to spread the lore of the mariachi uh, is to get people kind of nervous and, and anxious and just to see what's going on. And he also helps them uh, a little bit throughout the movie, though he also was trying to get the uh, mariachi to stop his uh, vengeful ways and retire. And he just realizes very... Um, he realizes early on, I think, that there's no way that anyone's getting out of this alive, which is sort of... Uh, absolutely correct because it ends up being his own death that happens uh, later i think it's one of the things you were talking about how the mariachi is responsible for a lot of people who seemingly are quite innocent and terrible things to happen uh, to them but what do you think of Subasemi in this movie justice for Busemi. justice for Busemi. <laughs> I, I i like him in this movie i think it's fun i think compared to the i mean we get two scenes here of the gringo, uh, you know, out of water, you know, the the gringo where maybe they're not supposed to be, right? And with Buscemi, I think it's kind of fun. I like the way he plays it. I like that you really get the feeling that he is leading them on in a certain way. Absolutely. Um, but but also sort of like playing Real it. low lives. Not like <laughs> you fellas here. Not like you fellas here. <laughs> it's so fucking good, man. It's funny. It's charming. Mm-hmm. It's really good. And I feel like the way that he gets killed is just super cheap. It's just yeah. super cheap. And I'm sure at the time I would have liked it because I was into edgy shit. But watching it now, I just thought like, uh, I mean, again, the, if you're not Antonio Banderas or Selma Hayek, the movie doesn't give a fuck about you. <laughs> and I'm just kind of like, uh, even like the fact that um, we take out uh, uh, Danny Trejo, Danny Trejo's character. In a, just a mistaken identity thing before he gets to do any real damage. I mean, he he fucks them up with those little knives. But even the whole thing was just kind of like it was predictable and it's kind of fun, but also kind of corny. I don't know. I just I like if you think about the fact that he has those knives as his only weapon just for like five minutes. You're like, that's useless. That is such like I know he he it's very he's very effective with it. He kills a bunch of people, but it's just like. No, the knife is not going to be as good as a gun. It's just not going to be. <laughs> I, 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 I defend the knife 
if we're in a if we're in a close situation where there are options, right? But what they want is for you to be in an open street where the other guy has a machine gun. No, the knife doesn't work. But like if we're in a hallway and I can hide and I can get to you with that knife, or, or I say I, Danny Trejo, fucking. But they're dude. little tiny knives. He'd have to get you with like three or four of them unless he hits a very specific spot. I, I still They're think little it's, knives. I, I, I think you know what he needs is a machete. <laughs> no, no, stop. <laughs> and, and, anyway, back to what we're supposed to be talking about here. I think Buscemi's great. I just think that the the movie it, they just need more. Uh, uh, they they want there to be a certain amount of death. They they there are plenty of scenes if you're paying attention where some of the same stunt people get killed like six times. You know what I mean? Like there just aren't that many people in this movie to kill that you care about. So Buscemi's got to go. The kid with guitar's got to go. Like everybody's got to go really like, you know, eventually they all got to end up dead. Even the bad guys that you like are going to end up dead. So like, you know, it's, it's, it just needs to happen. But, um, but I kind of wish we got. I, I I would have liked him to be in more of the film than he is personally. I mean, I, the the from what I read, which is again just the IMDb trivia in this case, they only had him for a certain number of days. So I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure. I mean, and, and that was and, and him and Cheech Marin, I guess, were were both kind of limited in terms of what they were ava- uh, available for. This is very much a case of Sibusemi being in this movie because he's Sibusemi, right? Because of what people think of him as at that time it was just kind of it really might be the first instance of it of him being cast just because of how people think of him and the kind of roles that he did right i mean this of course would have been post reservoir dogs but it would have been right around probably right around things to do in denver when you're dead i mean he had a reputation and then it was a year before fargo so i mean this it's all kind of happening at once people certainly know this the, the Buscemi type character and here he's playing it to a T. I mean, to the point where he's even named after his his actual name. Uh, I think he's terrific. I mean, he's he's so much fun, and I love the fact that he starts off the movie that he's the one who kind of sets the table and has the all of this dialogue in this one lengthy scene. And like you said, he plays it absolutely perfectly, and also it really sets the tone for the movie. The fact that it is going to be a little bit more comedic and a little bit more outrageous than El Mariachi was. Yeah, I think all that's true, and I think that. Um... You know, it's not the only stunt casting, right? Like, you know, Buscemi and Cheech Marin and Quentin Tarantino. Absolutely. These are all – these are three people who are there for the recognition they're going to get in the trailer. But I also think it's – there's probably times when Buscemi has been cast for this very reason and it didn't work. And in this film, I think it works. I wish he could have had more time. I'm sure that's nobody's fault. But the fact that – it's nobody's fault. Doesn't change the fact that I wish he was in the movie more, you know. And silly Robert Rodriguez, if you let him live in this one, you could have brought him back for Once Upon a Time in Mexico. You could have had him a whole time, the whole the whole movie. Why I not? Want, I want to point out, Doug, that you you were trying to make the case of how important Buscemi was in the in the in the zeitgeist, and you left out both Airheads and uh, Happy uh, Billy Madison. Yeah. Billy Madison, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Though I think Billy Madison was very much a similar case as to this, right? The idea of he was this kind of character, but certainly a very notable part of his career. And and it did mark 
his entry into the Sandlerverse. Are you not an Airheads person? Is not that... an Airheads person. I'm oh afraid. my god! Wow, yeah. it's it's a movie that I don't even like that much, but I've seen it so many times on cable that it's just part of my DNA. I have never seen it start to finish, but we will. We certainly will. Not on the next episode, but in an upcoming episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids. Liam, any final thoughts on Desperado? I mean, if if someone's out there listening who really hasn't seen it, I don't want our uh, negative feelings towards Robert Rodriguez to keep you from seeing it. If you're interested in a film that is like, you know, it's cribbing a lot from other action films. Um, it, it, it certainly is unique in that uh, this kind of Western movie with these very Mexican characters, it wasn't really that common, right? Like, Not at all. Th- in, a, in a way, you could really see this as a groundbreaking movie for a certain kind of, of, of actor, right? But also my endorsement from when I was 16 is not also what I would give you now. Like it's, it's not the most badass movie of all time. So, you know, I I think it's worth watching, but uh, you know, I'm not surprised it didn't quite hold up to the excitement I felt for it back in the day. In terms of my embarrassment about movies that I enjoyed as a youth, this is not the Boondock Saints. <laughs> yeah. One, the perfect example. The perfect example. It is much, much better than that and very much worth a, a rewatch. And, you know, if you have not seen Desperado and you haven't seen El Mariachi, uh, watch them. Watch them both. Watch Once Upon a Time in Mexico if you enjoy the two of those. There is a little bit of more of the same. I mean, I do think there's parts of Once Upon a Time in Mexico that are quite good. And the character of El Mariachi as played by Antonio Banderas. I mean, it's a, he's a lot of fun. He's terrific. And Salma Hayek is terrific as well. So, I mean, there's a lot, a lot to love here. I think we just have com- uh, complex feelings about how we used to think of this movie compared to how we think of it now. It's okay that it's just a good, maybe even really good action movie. Yeah, I agree. Liam, on the next episode of How Do You Do Fellow Kids, we're going back to the past, the back to the year 1990 for Tales from the Dark Side, the movie... This is a uh, anthology film mm-hmm. uh, made up of three parts in which one of them features uh, Steve Buscemi. I've seen it many times before, though. It's been a number of years, though I have to say I did not grow up on the television series Tales from the Dark Side, of which this is a movie version, uh, which really just means that it has a slightly bigger budget for these three different parts and more recognizable names. But I am excited to revisit it. Obviously, Tales from the Dark Side has that Romero shine, has the DNA of Creepshow within it. Uh, Have you uh, seen Tales from the Dark Side in the last few years? Oh, it's been a couple years, but yes. And what's funny is I was brought up on the TV show, and in 19... I probably saw this when it came out... I was not that excited on it. I didn't dislike it, but I thought it was a bit of a letdown. And then rewatching it as an adult, I actually think it's much better than I thought it was as a kid. Uh, so we'll see if I still feel that way. I appeared on a podcast that was going through the episodes of Tales from the Dark Side chronologically sure, a couple sure. of times. And I do have to say that the the earlier seasons are so much better than the later seasons. The, by, by the later seasons, it felt like they had zero money to make these things, which, I mean, you know, anthology movie uh, shows, I should say, were kind of going out of fashion. Kind of interesting. I think we mentioned Tales from the Dark Side on this episode and our most recent episode, or the very first episode of uh, Bar Tell Me Something uh, Good, which is uh, was just released previous to this. Yeah, it's it was a... It, it was a, a show that was on around the same times as uh, Amazing Stories, but I actually remember Tales from the Dark Side, and I don't remember <laughs> Amazing Stories. 
Liam, if people want to check out more episodes of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, or other podcasts featuring the two of us, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, of course, they can head to Cinepunks.com, where they can check out the whole family of podcasts, uh, including Cinepunks, Horror Business, uh, Twitch of the Death Nerve, Tomb of Ideas, uh, Wine and Cheese. Uh, They can also, uh, on that site, purchase uh, merch and check out some writing. I just recently uh, started a column called Out of the Box, where I'm, you know, I'm just jumping around some of my uh, box sets, just trying to create a little bit of diversity uh, in my writing, so I'm not sitting and writing about all of the movies in the full car set or the arrow shaw set or whatever like that sure so the first one was covering king boxer uh the next thing i'm going to be doing is the full car documentary that starts the full car set and then after that i believe i'll be doing uh the first movie in the years of lead collection uh Mm -hmm. which i'm excited for because we have our wild in the streets podcast uh if they want to hear more of this show or wild in the streets or the whole family of cinema smorgasbord podcast they can of course head to our website cinemasmorgasbord.com where we have our archive of shows everything that we've done together is available there uh and they can also follow us on social media they can find cinepunks uh c-i-n-e p-u-n-x on twitter facebook and instagram and they can follow uh cinema smorgasbord on twitter at cinema smorg s-m-o-r-g you can, of course, follow Liam on Twitter as well, at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. And I'm on there at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. If you enjoy any of our Cinema Smorgasbord podcasts, including How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, why don't you tell a friend? Why don't you leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice? Everything helps. We try to bring as much free content as possible. Another episode from our Cinema Smorgasbord uh, array of shows gets released every single Monday. Uh, Anything that you can do to spread the word is helpful to us, whether it be sharing it on social media or whatever. But for now, we need to close the Steve Buscemi bag for another week. We're going to be back very soon with Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. Good night, everyone. Night-night. Yeah.